0: 2 Peter chapter 1 is where we are. We'll be here for uh, this week, probably next week. We'll see if we can get through chapter 1. By next week, um, we are continuing today um, uh, primarily in verse 7, although we're going to go uh, verses 5 through, uh, five through 8 uh, today. Title of the message is, All You Need Is Love. Borrowed that from the theologians Lennon and McCarthy. Um, But uh, yeah, it's all you need is love, and by way of introduction, as you're making your way there, I'll tell you a brief story. It was June 2009, and it was my 24th wedding anniversary, and uh, I took Brenda to a nice hotel in Palm Springs. Some of you have heard this story. Uh, There we were. We're we're in a nice place, Palm Springs. It's a beautiful sunny day. I took my wife out to lunch. How am I doing, ladies? Pretty good? so far? Except for I forgot that it was our anniversary. Yeah, right? Not good. 20, and did I mention it was my 24th wedding anniversary? I made it up the following year. I took her to Europe, so, you know. But on that 24th anniversary, totally, I spaced it. We were in Palm Springs for a for a pastor's conference, and in that particular year, I've got lots of excuses. I'm a husband. I've been married 31 years, so i got lots of excuses. So, on that particular year, June 14th, which is my anniversary, which is ever so much more than flag day, I've discovered. Um, <laughs> it was a red flag day on that day. Um, it fell on a Sunday, and I had promised a friend of mine that I was going to preach at his church that Sunday, so I had a lot on my mind, is, is, what I, is my excuse that I'm sticking to. And um, so, you know, I told Brenda that morning, look, I, I gotta I gotta run to, to Grand Terrace, go preach two services out there, and I'll come back and I'll pick you up, we'll go get some lunch and then we'll go to, to the conference. She's like, Okay, so I come back, I pick her up, we go to a nice place for lunch, and we're sitting there, and she's giving me this weird look, and finally she says to me, Do you know what the day, the date is today? I'm like, I don't know, I don't have a clue. What day is it? She goes, Well, why don't you look at your phone? So I go, Okay, well it's June four- Oh, it's June fourteenth. I'm like, happy anniversary? (laughs) Uh, That went over poorly, uh, as you might imagine. Now, I tell you that story to introduce to you our subject today, because the subject is love. And you see, it's not so much what we do that matters, it's why we do what we do that matters. See, the Bible says that we can speak with eloquent words, that we can move mountains by faith, that we can give everything that we have to the poor, we can even walk through fire. But if we do it without the motive of love, well, the Bible says it's worthless. And if you've been with us as we've been going through the second uh, epistle of Peter, basically what you've seen is that as Peter is opening and introducing this letter uh, to the to the church there that he's writing to, um, well, his point here in the opening verses is, is that Christians need to grow up and that we need to be fruitful in our lives. And in order for that to happen, well, Peter says there's things that we need to add to our faith. And so for the last three weeks, we've been building on two principles. The first principle is this, that fruitful growth requires Purposeful participation on your part and on my part. Just as we add things to our life to grow up physically, when we mature and move out of mom and dad's house and start, you know, becoming an adult as, as we ought to, um, just as we add things to our life spiritually or physically to mature, so too we have to add things to our life spiritually to mature in the faith. That's the the first principle we're building on. Second principle is a cousin to that, which basically is, hey, fruitful growth follows a practical path. It follows a practical path. So Peter here, he's outlining, laying out for us this practical path, and this is what we've been looking at for the last several weeks. He says this in verse five, but also for this very reason, (coughs) giving all diligence, add to your faith, "...virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." And so Peter here, he says, look, you, you got to grow up, you got to mature, things that you got to add start with virtue. We've seen that that means moral excellence. The idea is that as Christians, the word to fulfill our God-given purpose, and that is to glorify God and to reflect Him in our actions. Now, this is something that we do cooperatively with God. The Bible says that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And that's good news because that means that when we're called to live in a morally excellent way that not only is it our efforts to do that uh, that make that happen but also God meets us in those efforts and he equips us to live in that morally excellent way. So Peter says add this to your faith. Then he says, add to virtue, this moral excellence, he says, add to virtue, knowledge. Now, Warren Wiersbe describes this word knowledge as knowledge that is growing. Uh, The idea is that the more you know Jesus, the less that you're going to sin. Peter goes on, he says, add to knowledge, self-control. And again, the idea is that as you know and grow in Jesus, the better able able that you're going to be to control your behavior. He then says, add to self-control, perseverance. Perseverance, the, the word basically in the conveyance of this, it's the idea of remaining strong in the face of hardship and adversity. Um, and, and it has a forward look to it. And so the idea here is this, that, hey, when you go through difficulty, when you go through trial, perseverance says, you know what, I'm God's kid. And he hasn't lost my address. He knows who I am, and he's creating me to be who he wants me to be. And so I'm going through difficulty. I'm going through trial. Just as the psalmist said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And so the attitude of perseverance is to say, Whatever this hardship is, I'm going to look forward by faith, through it to say, God hasn't left me, he hasn't forsaken me, because he promises me that he'll never leave me, and he'll never forsake me. But rather, God's allowed me to go through whatever this is for my good. Romans eight twenty eight. And all things, God works together for good to those that love him and are the called according to his purposes. Well, then Peter says, add to perseverance godliness. We looked at this last week. The idea of godliness is a devout reverence for God. Um, the idea is that your, your behavior should be god-like, that your, your actions and the way that you live out your life should be a reflection of true religion or true worship. And he says, so that's what we're, we're to add, a godlike aspect to the way we carry ourselves. Well, then he says, add to godliness brotherly kindness. Um... This, this phrase, brotherly kindness, the idea is that we are to endeavor to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, now that brings us to the command that he, that he finishes with here, and uh, what he finishes with is this command to love. Now, the idea is that over and above brotherly kindness, the Bible talks on and on a bazillion references in scripture, you know, just among them, John 13, 35, John 15, 12, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, 1 John 3, 11, all of these exhortations that we're to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, well, the Bible says that over and above that we're to love those who are unlovely, we're to, to, we're to bless those who persecute us. We're to, we're to love those who spitefully use us. We're to love the person that cuts us off in traffic. We are to, and we do such a good job of it here at the church, don't we? Somebody comes in, we're, oh, yeah, go ahead, it's all right. And then something happens when we get out on Paba, we don't act that way, right? And so we're to, we're to love one another regardless of whether we're Christians or not. And this has to be the foundation of every other action. That's the idea of adding love to our lives. And Peter says this in verse 8, if you'll take note. He says, if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful. Now, when he says that, he's, it's not just saying, you know, two different words to describe the same thing. You won't, you won't be barren and or unfruitful. No, they're both distinctly different things. First of all, barren. Here's the idea. When he says, if these things are yours and abound, you're not going to be barren. What does it mean to be barren? Here's what that means. That word means that you, you yield no return because of inactivity. That's what it means. I'll describe it this way. Years ago, we were building a church in Menifee, uh, Calvary Chapel, Menifee, uh, now Reliant, or Revival. And, uh, and as we're building it, we put in a septic system initially. Uh, and the reason we did that is because we didn't want to pay all the astronomical connection fees to the sewer. So we designed a septic system, and it was gargantuan because the sanctuary seated like 1,200 people. And so to, to, to have a septic system, we had like three acres of, of leach field, okay? And when you put in a leach field, you got to dig all of these, these uh, deep... Troughs, and then you fill them up with gravel, and then right in the middle of the gravel, you know, about halfway up, you put these long tubes out that the everything leaches through, and then you put gravel over the top of that. And so, because you've got these long tubes, they're they're delicate, and you can't use heavy equipment to put the gravel in on top. You have to shovel all the gravel in by hand. So three three acres of gravel, right? So we get these guys out. We have we we need help. And so in addition to, to, you know, the workers that we had assembled, we got a group of guys from U-Turn for Christ, a drug and alcohol rehab. And so we've got guys out there that are kicking down off of meth and whatever else. And there's one guy in particular, and it's August, so it's about 180 degrees outside, you know. And this guy is leaning on his shovel. He looks like he's about to to just lose it and uh, hasn't moved a single rock. He's just sitting there beat red, leaning on a shovel. And the superintendent of the job, he leans over to this kid. and He goes, hey, if you start, you just might finish, you know. And the picture there is this idea of being barren. He hadn't done any work. And so he would yield if he continued in that attitude, in that orientation throughout the whole day. He would yield no return whatsoever because of inactivity. Well, Peter says, if these things, all of these things that he's saying to add to the faith are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren. But he also uses the word unfruitful. Now that word unfruitful, the idea is that your actions don't yield what they ought to yield. Your actions don't yield what they ought to do. And here's the idea. Maybe you do exercise some of these things. Maybe you do add virtue. Maybe you do add knowledge. Maybe you do add self-control. But you do them with the wrong motive. And so what Peter's saying is, you know, if you do those things with the wrong motive, you're going to be unfruitful. It's not going to yield what you want it to yield. You know, I take my wife to to a nice hotel in Palm Springs, take her out to a nice meal, but I'm not doing it because it's our anniversary. It's not going to yield what it otherwise might have yielded, all right? And, and so that's, that's the picture here. Now let me give you an example of this. All of these things that Peter is saying that we're to add to our faith. Virtue, knowledge, self-control. Let's just take knowledge. The word that he uses there in verse 5, knowledge, it's, it's a Greek word, gnosis. Here's what it means. It means a seeking to know, an inquiry, or an investigation. Again, Warren Wiersbe describes it as knowledge that is growing. Well, there's lots of people that can know the Bible... But it never makes it from their head to their heart. Um, in Jesus' day, these were the Pharisees. The, the, the religious leaders who basically had a lot of head knowledge, but they didn't have the same heart knowledge. And so this is an, an issue where you would be unfruitful. That, that you would maybe add the study of God's word to your life, but it's in an unfruitful way. You, you, you have this knowledge, it gets in your head. Paul put it this way in First Corinthians chapter 8. He said, knowledge, this, this word uh, gnosko, he said, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So we see this demonstrated. There's people that are puffed up with knowledge that are that are not that have not added this this idea of love to the whole component. So even though they do this thing, they don't act this way. You know, God squad, God squad Christians. You know, they're all legalists. A God squad here. Who? Um, anybody watching the Olympics? Okay, so the, the swimmer uh, Phelps, um, Michael Phelps. Is it Michael? Okay, so um, so Michael Phelps. I was reading in, in Fox News today, and uh, basically, it's, there's an article talking about how he was in rehab. He was suicidal and, and so on, and he began reading The Purpose-Driven Life, a book written by Rick Warren, and apparently, he came to know the Lord, and it radically changed his life, and, and so they were just telling that story. Now, whenever I read a news story, I always want to go to the comment section, um, and, you know, I just, I don't know, it's, I'm weird that way. I just always read people's comments. And, of course, inevitably, and it's always this way, there's all the comments of people that are just attacking the things of God. And, and so those, all those comments are there. But then, there's Christians, God squad Christians, who are going to talk about, you know, this, this guy's experience and, and the fact, I mean, it's a good thing. He comes to know the Lord, He's not suicidal anymore. They called him Pastor Michael in rehab because he went around sharing all the things that God was showing him, you know, as he read this book written by Rick Warren. But then there's all these God Squad God's Christians who are writing in there about, oh, Rick Warren is of the devil. And then there's others that are talking about, you know, well, gosh, if he's so godly, why doesn't he marry his girlfriend who he's got a kid with? And it's like, you know, come on, man. I mean, the guy who was suicidal unsaved, and you're going to start, you know, going through all your head knowledge and, and all the reasons why, in your estimation, that, you know, he's lacking in whatever way. Hey, look in the mirror, for crying out loud. You know, we're all lacking in some way. And so, so the idea here is that we need to add all of these things to our life to grow And if you add virtue, if you add knowledge, if you add self-control, and the list goes on and on, but you don't do it in love, hey, it's meaningless. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's there to your left. We're going to go to the quintessential New Testament book on love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll pick it up in verse 1. The Apostle Paul speaking, he says, Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, love, I've become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He says at the beginning of verse 8, love it never fails. The Bible has a lot to say about love. For starters, love is God's gift to us, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is God's gift to us. And in fact, the Bible says that our capacity to love anybody at all stems from the fact that that it comes first from God's gift to us. 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. Not only is God His love God's gift to us, but it's also God's greatest commandment to us. We looked at this a little bit last week, where Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus told his followers in John's gospel, by this all will know you're my disciples, by your love one for another. And again in John fifteen twelve, Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now it's interesting, in every single one of those examples and all throughout as we read in 1 Corinthians 13, these mention of love, it's all one Greek word, The word's agape. Most Christians, if you've been in a church for any length of time, you've heard this word agape. Agape is the noblest word in the Greek language that speaks of love. It's the most noble word you can use when referencing love. And it's used about 320 times in the New Testament to speak of the love of God towards us and the love that we are commanded to have one for another. It's a love of esteem. It's a love of sacrifice. Agape is a love that is others focused, which is everything that you and I are not in our natural selves. It's a love that thinks of others all the time. And because it's an unconditional love, which is by by definition what agape is, it's unconditional because it's unconditional, it keeps on loving even when the object that, is, that the love is directed towards isn't deserving of that love. It keeps on loving even if the object that it's focused on, the person that it's focused on is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, or unworthy. That's the nature of agape love. In other words, it desires only your good. Only the other's good. It's a consuming passion for another person's well-being. I mean, just take a walk with that. Do we we have a consuming passion for other people? Not always. (laughs) Not a lot, you know. And that this is yet what it is. Now, in, in the English, we've only got one word for love. Love, right? The Greeks, they had a bunch of different words for love. And, um, you know, they got this word agape, which is all the things I've just described. But then they also have other words. And it's useful for us. I'm not going to go over an exhaustive uh, looking at all the different Greek words for love. But I am going to look at a couple of them with you. And it's helpful simply because, you know, if, if I say, you know, I love you or I love something... Um, it's just going to be that one word. So you know, I love hot dogs. I love pizza, pepperoni pizza. I especially love cold pepperoni pizza, like the next day. That's my favorite. Um, I, I, I you, you, like I can tell. Um, I, I love, I love hockey. I love hockey fights. That's why hockey exists, anyway. And so I love that, and I love my wife. So if I love all of those things, hopefully. I love my wife a little different, but you wouldn't necessarily know it because I lump her in there. You might assume it, but, but there's no guarantees because I haven't, I haven't quantified it, right? So the Greeks quantify it with different words, and it's useful for us to look at these different words because they help us to evaluate the state of our love. And so let's, let's consider one. We'll start with the Greek word eros, eros. It's a, it's a love of passion. This is often described as sexual love because this is where we get the word erotic from. Now, the basic idea of Eros is this. It's an emotional involvement based on body chemistry, okay? We deal with this when we're discipling teenage boys. He's like, she's hot. Yeah, so is hell, you know? It's an emotional <laughs> involvement that's based on body chemistry. So the thing about Eros, and this is, this is fascinating, is when you consider it, it's directed towards another person, but it actually is done so in a very selfish way because it always has yourself in mind. So even though there's an object of your affection, it's a self-centered objectification. That's what, that's what eros is. In other words, eros says, I love you because you make me happy. Take a walk with that. Does that sound familiar? Talk to an, a divorce attorney. She doesn't make me happy anymore, man. I don't love him anymore. See, th- this is, th- these are some familiar things. Eros love, if your relationship is predominantly built on it, and I'm just going to use marriage as this, as, to, to define this, but it, 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 obviously love isn't just confined to our marriage relationships. But Eros, if, if this is what your marriage is comprised of, is a huge problem, because what happens if the characteristic changes? I love you because you make me happy. What if you don't make me happy anymore? Wives, what if your husband married you because you're a size two, and then a few years into the marriage, you're on your fourth kid, you know? It's like, hey, I ain't a size two anymore. Don't expect it, Jack. It ain't gonna happen, you know? But what if that's the sole extent of your marriage relationship? Well, then you're gonna have some problems. You know, the result is, hey, you know what? I loved you when you were size two. I don't love you anymore. That's Eros. Now, Eros only looks for what it can receive and it doesn't give, And if it gives, it gives with a selfish motivation to get something in return. That's the idea of Eros. Um, And if it fails to get what it thinks it should get or what it seeks to get, then what results is bitterness and resentment. And so that poses a huge problem. And understanding the philosophy of Eros, basically, it's this. It's that being loved depends on being attractive in some way to another person. That's the essence of Eros. Being loved depends on being attractive to some other person. Now, I'm the youngest of three children, and I have two older sisters. Um, Mom, two daughters, a wife. I, 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 I understand, as much as any man can understand women, to know this that women deal very difficultly with this whole issue of attraction and that it becomes this this constant threatening thing am i pretty enough am i good enough am i lovable and, and this whole issue of, of eros, especially when it's, unhealth, it's present in an unhealthy way in a relationship, it can absolutely ruin your life. I know of a couple several years ago, it had nothing to do with this church, but I know of a couple that, well, their marriage relationship pretty much was almost exclusively... Based on, on, on Eros love for the husband's part. I mean, regularly to his wife, it would be, you know, hey, honey, you're getting a little heavy. You need to lose some weight. Uh, hey, you sure you want to eat that? Hey, you need to go to the gym. Hey, why don't we get you some plastic surgery? And for this poor woman, it was, it was always about, am I pretty enough? Am I thin enough? Am I acceptable? Am I lovable? And I don't know, maybe that's something that you're dealing with today. Eros, the philosophy is being loved depends on being attractive in some way to another person. Listen, it's telling that you will not find eros used in the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that being concerned about your partner, your spouse's happiness being concerned about your spouse's appearance um, or how you appear to your spouse, that doesn't necessarily mean that those are unimportant in a relationship. Certainly they are, but it has to be in, in, in a healthy sense. You know, to, I, I think of Janie Alfred. She said years ago, ladies, if the barn needs painting, paint it, you know. But, but, but not from uh, eros, I need to, am I attractive enough? I need to work on this so I'm acceptable to you concept. No, that's okay if it's based in an agape concept where the wife says, I am thinking about my husband and I want to be pretty to my husband. I want to focus on my figure for my husband. But it doesn't come from the the place that says, I need his love, so I'm going to do these things. It comes from a place that says, I love him, so I'll do these things. It's completely a different thing so we we need to understand that you know if our mindset, when we hear love and if we think in those terms, listen that that is that is that's pretty unhealthy for a relationship to to revolve around that And, and you know for the guys here, I would say that if if that's kind of the anchoring bedstone of of your of your marriage relationship, and that's sort of your attitude you need to come to Jesus and deal with that because that is not the foundation for healthy for a healthy marriage. Well, another word that a Greek word for love is this word phileo. Now, this love speaks of affection, of fondness or of liking. Dr. Kenneth Woost describes it this way. He says it's a love that is called out of the heart in response to the pleasure that you take in another person. Um, in other words, it responds to kindness, it responds to appreciation, it responds to love. This is phileo, you know, it, it's like someone, you know, gives you some sort of a gift. Hey, I was thinking about you, I bought you a gift. Oh, I love that guy, you know, it, it's kind of like that. It's it's sort of a you scratch my back, I scratch yours sort of deal. Now, phileo love is higher than eros because uh, it focuses on our happiness not just on my happiness, okay? But the problem is that when phileo is strained, it too can collapse in a crisis. I'll give you an example of this. In John chapter 21, Peter has denied the Lord. Jesus told him that he was gonna deny him. He said, nah, even if all these other losers deny you, I won't deny you, and then he goes out and denies the Lord. So Peter's feeling pretty bad about himself. Jesus shows up. He's gonna restore Peter. And so in the restoration process, Jesus says to Peter, Hey, Pete, do you love me? Agape is the word that Jesus uses. Do you agape me? Do you you love me unconditionally? Peter at this point answers Jesus and he says, Jesus, I phileo you. I love you, but my love is more about, Hey, you've been good to me. I love you like a brother kind of deal. I don't love you unconditionally. Now, in part, this is progress for Peter. Because when he told Jesus, hey, even if all these other guys deny you, I'll never deny you, he had a really high estimation of himself, and then all of a sudden he failed catastrophically and he realized, oh man, I really don't have an unconditional love for the Lord. After all, it really is more of a, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, and in the point of crisis it failed. And so there's an honesty to it. He's no longer saying, hey, even if everybody else denies you, I'll never deny you. He's just going, you know what, Jesus? You're asking me if I love you unconditionally, and I've seen into the depths of my soul, and I've realized that I don't. Forgive me, but this is, I filet owe you. Jesus asks him a second time, all right, Peter, do you agape me? Peter's like, Lord, you know all things. You know that I filet owe you. Jesus a third time, he says, Peter, do you love me? And the word that Jesus uses now is phileo. So, so Peter, you love me conditionally. Is that it? And it says, as you read John chapter 21, it says that Peter was grieved when Jesus asked him the third time. So you phileo me then. And Peter was grieved. He's like, Lord, you know all things. You know that, that, that that's where I'm at. Now the beauty of that, as an aside, is that the Lord meets him right there. The Lord doesn't say, hey, you won't, you won't love me unconditionally. Well, then you're out and forget it. No, the Lord meets him right there. He says, go feed my sheep, tend my lambs, and so on. And and the Lord is going to, you know, through relation with Peter, bring him to that place where he will love him in an unconditional way. But right now, Peter's just being candid. He's being open. He's being honest. But it's a great illustration of the fact that phileo, love, will only get you so far until in the moment of crisis it will collapse. So this both eros love and phileo love are based in the natural man, in our natural affections, in in our flesh. Agape love, by contrast, is different because it's a supernatural love. It's not conditional, it's not sensual, it's not part of our natural affections. Uh, And it comes, listen, it comes directly from God. That's the thing. So back in Peter, Second Peter, in verse 8 of chapter 1, Peter says, if these things are yours, what are these things? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness. If these things are yours, he says, and if you put on along with them agape love, which is foundational and needs to be the motive of all of these things, and he says, and if, if that abounds in you, well, then he says you're going to be neither barren nor unfruitful in what? In the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, if you wanted to circle that word knowledge there in verse 8 nearby, you could write the Greek word epigenosis. E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S. Epigenosis. What is epigenosis? It is a full or a thorough knowledge which results in a greater participation by the knower, that's you, in the object known, that's God, and here's the result, it produces a more powerfully influence in your life. So so the idea here is that you have... This, this epigenosis, this upon, this lavishing out that God gives to you, that he pours this thing out. In other words, it's a supernatural knowledge, it's a revelation from God to you that, that is a light bulb and in your life and it allows you thereby to have a dynamic effect on how you live your life. Now, this word epigenosis, it's used 20 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it 16 times. And Peter uses it four times, all four times, here in Second Peter. He uses this word epigenosis. This, this supernatural revelation knowledge that God imparts to you. And in the process, he empowers you even more pro- to produce fruit. Now, let me give you a good picture of, of what happens in this epigenosis process. In, in, um, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, you don't have to turn there, you can if you want, but verse 25, familiar verse should be to most Christian men, it's husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. The word is agape. Husbands love unconditionally your wives just as Christ has known you, just, just as Christ does the church. The, the issue here is that, well, As Christ loved the church, as we have that epigenosis, as we, in relationship with God, as he reveals himself to us, the goodness of Jesus, as we participate cooperatively with God to know him better, and as God pours out this epigenosis, this supernatural knowledge upon us, well, then what happens is we know Jesus, we know him intimately, we know him personally, and we understand what he's done for us. We understand when when we read in Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, I understand how did Christ love the church? That Jesus hanging on the cross as they're spitting in his face saying, die already. He's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then what happens is is I know and if I understand and as I grow in this revelation from God of his love for me, well, then the more powerfully I'll be influenced to love my wife, okay? And so what happens then is that now having been powerfully influenced by God through this epigenosis, now I can say, God, I'm going to love her. Father, forgive her. She doesn't know what she's doing in this situation, when she's being unlovely or whatever it is, and it works both ways. Look, how is this possible? Guys, let me ask you. How is it possible for you to love your wife unconditionally like Christ loved the church? How how is that possible? It's a trick question. It's impossible, okay? You can't do that. It ain't in you. You don't have enough try in you to agape your wife or anybody else for that matter. Why is that? Well, because it's not something you manufacture. Absolutely, it is, it is not you, and it's not something that you can manufacture. It's something that God supernaturally grows within you. I'm reminded of that joke about the scientist who goes to God. He's like, hey, you know what? You're obsolete. We don't need you anymore. Turns out, we can do organ transplants. We can, like, you know, create embryos in, in test tubes and all of that stuff. So, God, we don't need you anymore. God says to the scientist, oh, you think you can create a man out of the dirt? He goes, oh, I don't know, I'll give it a try. He reaches down to grab some dirt. God's like, hey, get your own dirt. (laughs) It's not something we can produce, we can manufacture. It's fruit that happens in our lives. See, if you read in Galatians 5.22, it talks to us about the fruit of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are are a fruit of the Spirit, and and we are called as Christians just to produce fruit. How do we go about doing that? I'm glad you asked. Turn to John chapter 15. I'm going to finish up here in John, and we'll pick up 2 Peter again next week. But John chapter 15, the question is, and how am I going to produce this fruit of love? If I'm called to add love to my life, well, how do I go about doing that? Here in John chapter 15, Jesus talking to his disciples, he's explaining that he's the true vine and, uh, and that we are branches that need to, to abide in him. We'll pick it up in verse 4. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Get your own dirt, is what he's saying. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Get your own dirt. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask for what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Peter's the whole point in the opening of the epistle, bear fruit, grow up, you need to bear fruit. Jesus says, you have to abide in me to bear fruit. Verse 9, as the Father loved me, I have loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he may give you, verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. Love, 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 it's the word agape. Now, he also uses the word abide here. It shows up a few times, if you didn't notice. Ten times, as a matter of fact, in just a few short verses. He says, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. You want to love? Abide in me. And that word abide, it means to remain, to stay, and to live. And it pertains to place, time, state, or condition. The whole idea here that Peter is saying is, look... If you want to grow up and be a mature Christian, you have to add things to your faith. You have to add them regularly. You have to add them systematically. You have to add virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness. And listen, they're all useless if they're not done in love. And so you have to add love. And so for us today, the lesson is this. We need to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. The lesson for us today, listen, for some, we need to deal with this issue of if I'm not pretty enough, I'm not, loved. I'm not lovely enough, I'm not, I'm not worthy of love. For some, we have to deal with, man, I'm objectifying people and my whole concept of love is completely self-focused and self-centered and I need to repent of that. Three questions with some sub-questions I want to leave you with just to take a walk with this week. I'll leave them on the screen. You can take a picture with them if you want because there's a lot to write. But listen, first question, am I truly abiding in Christ? Take a walk with that. Am I truly abiding with Christ? Here's some some sub-questions, clarifying questions. How is it reflected in the places I go? How is it reflected in the use of my time? How is it reflected in my state of mind? How is it reflected in my condition of being? Am I truly abiding in Christ? Second question, is my love more agape-oriented or carnally-oriented? Is it more agape, unconditionally-oriented, or more carnally-oriented? More towards the flesh, eros, phileo, and so on. And some sub-points, do I have an unhealthy focus on myself? Do I have an unhealthy focus on being loved? or the need to be loved? And I close with this question. Am I characterized as a consumer in my relationships or as a contributor? I apologize for that one. That one's sneaky. That one, that was a low blow right there because that one hurt some people. Again, we've been watching the Olympics. You know, it's funny. As you watch the swimming events, They actually have a lifeguard at the pool. This guy is sitting there. I mean, you talk about like a kickstand on a Sherman tank. You got a guy sitting there, and and somebody made the comment online, this guy is the poorest swimmer at the pool, you know, the lifeguard. Everybody else, the best swimmers in the world, and you've got a lifeguard who's there. Now, a lifeguard, his job is to save somebody who's drowning. And you know, if those of you who have been a lifeguard... um, Pastor Mike was telling me, he used to be a a lifeguard. When somebody is drowning, a lot of times, if you go up to get them, they'll actually, they'll pull you under, they'll drown you. Why? They're a consumer. They're like just consumed with the, I just need to be rescued. And so you become a life, a buoy to them. They don't care if they drown you in the process, they're desperate. So they tell lifeguards actually to go underwater and to come up and surprise them and grab them to rescue them. They even tell lifeguards, sometimes if, they, if a person's fighting too much, punch them in the mouth to rescue them. Some, I'll just say it this way, so it's not too threatening or, or, or confrontive. Some of us are consumers where our relationships are concerned. And when what we, we're sucking people dry, and people become a commodity to satisfy or satiate my need for love. And if that's you today, God would, would speak to your heart today, I hope and pray and tell you that that's not where he wants you to be. And you need to come to the place to where you allow Christ to rescue you, where you allow your esteem to come from Jesus Christ and you receive his love because he does love you. And to you, he's valuable. You're so precious to God that he would send his only begotten son to die on a cross so that you might have life. And if you're in a place today where your constant threat, your constant burden is, am I pretty enough? Am I lovely enough? Am I acceptable enough? Listen, you're accepted in the beloved by Christ Jesus. Your evaluation, your esteem needs to come from him today. Some of you all need to do business with God in that respect. And just say, God, help me not to be a consumer. And to suck people dry and to be the one that's constantly like, you know, the woman at the well or whatever it is that I'm just looking just for those that are going to satisfy my need for love. Lord, you satisfy my need for love. So, so that I can be that person rather than being a consumer, I'm a contributor to love others as you have loved me.